Welcome to Applaudable Perspectives. This is Pam Lewis, and I'm sitting here at the beautiful Belmont Mansion, which if you never had a chance to come visit, I sincerely urge you to come and take a visit. I know so many people uh, traveling always ask me places to visit. I always say Belmont Mansion, and people who have lived here have never visited. So do come and take a visit. I'm sitting here with Mark Brown and his cohort in crime, Jerry, and say hello today. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about history, the importance of history, how we are interpreting history these days, and uh, what are some of the challenges. Mark, why don't you start? You and I have known each other for a long time. I used to be on your board. Um, tell everybody a little bit about your background, how you got started, and your education. And I know you've been here your entire adulthood, yes, basically. Yes, basically, yes. Uh, I came first to Nashville to go to school at Belmont. Uh-huh. What, uh, was it Ward Belmont then? No, it was not quite Ward <laughs> Belmont then. It, had, it wasn't quite that long ago. It had been co-ed a couple of years from the time I got here. Uh, it was in the, it was in the, the mid-70s and uh, came here to study history and thought I was going to be a history teacher. And while here, I got interested in working here at the mansion. Uh, the association had just formed the year before I arrived. Was it open as a house museum at the time? It was not open as a house museum at that time. Bad shape? Bad shape. It wasn't, yeah, it was in bad shape. It was also, I mean, it had been used heavily by the colleges. Dormitory. As right. dormitories and then as parlors, as the dean of women's office, as the dean of women's apartment, just... And it looked like it had had, you know, a hundred years of college use mm. uh, here. Fortunately, the public rooms, most of the public rooms in the house, the parlors were kept pretty well intact. And so they were, uh, their architectural features were retained. So I came here as a student and... and what were uh, you studying? I was studying history, history. Okay. with a minor in education. Okay. And uh, my major professor said, you need to go get involved in the mansion. So I dutifully came up here and started volunteering as a student and working up here and realized that that's really where my passion was, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, was in public history, decorative arts, fine arts, and, and this type of thing, that type of, that part of history, what the French call le, le petite history, mm -hmm. the little history, the history of everyday activity, everyday life, um, and somewhat everyday people, but the way mm -hmm. everything sort of functioned. Mm -hmm. And that, I became so fascinated with that, so I soon decided I wanted to work in-house museums, so I dropped the minor in education and picked up a minor in business administration mm -hmm. and then started going to UT Nashville and um, also getting a minor in art history mm -hmm. uh, at UT Nashville. And once I graduated from here after four years, I went on to Middle Tennessee State University in their public history program uh, there. And then after two years there, I took my first job uh, as director of Blunt Mansion in Knoxville, Tennessee, the home okay. of the territorial governor, mm -hmm. uh, William Blunt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Blunt County. Blunt is County named is named after him. him. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I was there for seven years, 
and um, were you always keeping in touch with Belmont? Always was keeping in touch with Belmont. And, and had it been opened at that point? Yes, it opened to the public on July 2nd, 1976, wow. on a regular basis. And I was the tour guide that day. Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, was it furnished at all? Or did oh, you... it, was, it was furnished, somewhat furnished. Yeah. We had already removed all of the or most of the non-period pieces. Mm -hmm. So there were 70 pieces of furniture in the house. There was not any, there were no smalls, no accessories, mm -hmm. uh, no artwork hanging on the walls. Wow. Uh, at all. It was, it was pretty grim. That's hard to imagine it's, now. It's hard wow. to imagine, but the house had good bones. And uh, so it, people were interested and it fortunately was an interesting story. Yeah. yeah. And so I, after I graduated, they hired a series of directors, and so I came back 35 years ago. Oh, my gosh. And you're just a pup still. Just a pup still, yes. And you're sporting a beard. I like the beard. Yeah. It's, it fits It fits you. Very it's, professorial. Yeah. 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 Jerry, do you want to be mute, or do you want to talk a little bit? Do you, I'll you, talk a little you, bit. So you've been involved for 10 years here. Tell, tell the people a little bit about yourself, your last name, and, and how you got involved with Mark and Belmont. Uh, my name is Jerry Trescott, and I'm a curator here and also the Director of Architectural Restoration. I've been here for 10 years now. Uh, my wife was a student of Mark's when he really? taught oh. classes at UT when you were in Knoxville. Wow. And uh, Mark and I had met because we went to the same graduate school uh -huh. together, uh -huh. not at the same time, uh, even though I'm older. <laughs> and it's all relative <laughs> it is it is uh, and i of course knew belmont when i was in graduate school here in middle tennessee and, and had come several times to look at what was going on in the restoration and and was intrigued by the architectural integrity of this property mm -hmm. and when my my wife and i decided to move back to nashville I, i'm from maryland and we lived there most of our lives and then came back here uh, we redeveloped a relationship with Mark. Uh, my wife worked here doing research for a few months, and then Mark said, what's Jerry doing? <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is such And the bait was set. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and I have um, gladly been involved here for a long time now, mm -hmm. and been involved in the restoration and planning it and putting things together and overseeing what goes on and working with all the objects that we've been able to locate in the time that we've been working together. It's been a good working relationship, I think, for the two of us uh, because we both bring different sorts of talents mm -hmm. and when you pair them together, you're able to accomplish so much more. And you've weathered COVID. That's one of the things we were we talking have. about, we that have. you continue to write grants and continue to raise money and do projects and... Uh, why don't you both sort of talk a little bit about what you've just finished and kind of uh, maybe give people a tour of what you're working on and how they might be able to help and get involved in some capacity. There's one room in particular in this house that I've had my eye on for the entire time I've been here. Mm -hmm. And that is the Bayard Room, which has seen several different lifetimes since 1890 when the college took over. And it's always been my goal to get to the point in this restoration that we could move into that space. This house has been about Adelicia from the day it was built. 
she paid for it. She oversees what we do now in one way or another through our research primarily. But we often forget that she was married to a man named Joseph Acklin, mm -hmm. who had his own interests, his own powers in life. And this, this billiard room, as I see it, will bring him back to life also. Mm -hmm. And it's also a space that architecturally and proportionally, I think, is one of the most perfect rooms in the house. We've been able to uncover many of details of that room in the last year, particularly in the last two weeks when we finished gutting the last of the college walls out of that space and now we're looking forward to putting things back to what they would have been in the 1850s. Mm -hmm. I was excited. I just, you, you were kind enough to show me. Yes. And so talk about some of the things you have found kind of in your excavation that people might have found. That's an excellent way to put it <laughs> because it's an architectural excavation. I wasn't going to say archaeological dig, but no. close to it. <laughs> Very much so. You've seen the space. Uh, a house will always tell you what it was and what it needs to be again. I've mm -hmm. learned that in my career. Uh, when you walk into a building, it's not what you want it to be. It's what it was and what it should be again. Mm -hmm. And this house, in particular, has so many clues left. We're very lucky that in the 1890s, the college hired some pretty lazy carpenters. And they covered <laughs> up more than they tore out. But at least it was protected in some yes, ways. It's, exactly. it, it's a double-edged sword, you it, know. Exactly. So I think one of the best things that we have found in that room is the remnant of the original 1850s floor cloth that was under a wall that was added in the 1890s. Which can now be replicated. Exactly. And you found some wallpaper. We found some French wallpaper in mm -hmm. the back of two hidden bookcases that had been plastered over for about 100 years. Wow. And we it's found like peeling away it is. like an onion skin almost, you exactly know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I love it. It's exciting. I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Very much so. So the other thing that you are interpreting is African American history here. We so you've we got have to. you have uh, that's really uh, expanded and the story has changed and and probably your audiences have also changed. Mark, why don't you, since you've been here for so long, talk a little bit about how your interpretation of history has changed. And what I love about both of you is you're, you're constantly studying. You're constantly going through self-reflection on how to do your jobs better, how to tell the story better. So share a little bit about your thoughts on, on these things, too. Well, it was interesting when I started to work here 35 years ago, telling the story of a rich white woman was very revolutionary and very cutting edge. Um, there, who had a prenup. Who had a prenup, <laughs> and, you know, who, who had two prenups with two husbands. Oh, that's true. So uh, she, she was acting outside of her sphere mm -hmm. of life during that period, as they would say. So that was considered to be very cutting edge. There were very few museums in the country talking about women mm -hmm. and um was it because the women hadn't found their power or they just buried those stories or maybe it was a combination it of was both a combination of both i think there was more burying those stories mm -hmm. than anything else um they're difficult they're many times more difficult to document mm -hmm. because there's not always the written trail mm -hmm. uh, that you have with men particularly powerful men mm -hmm. uh, leave often a good documentation of written trails. Sure. Um, women don't often do that. 
women in this period, particularly the antebellum period, um, seldom express their feelings in letters mm -hmm. and their thoughts in letters. So you're always trying to read between the lines. But that was uh, what we were uh, were doing uh, 35 years ago. And they ago. may or may not have kept a journal, which it in this case, Adelicia did not. Either if she kept one, it, it has not, not survived. survived. Yeah, I can't imagine at some point in her life she didn't, but none have survived. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's not even really a great group of letters mm -hmm. uh, from her any, anywhere. There's some small groups, but not, nothing major. And we really have been all over the eastern United States and to Texas looking for uh, information. Well, and, and what I think you've done a great job at is, is finding and restoring original artifacts to the home, which right. is not easy to do. No. But some of them you've been able to negotiate with family members and some you've been able to purchase, I'm assuming, as well. Right. So, Yeah, the collection was dispersed in um, 1889. Um, mm -hmm. Adelisha had sold the property and moved to Washington, D.C. Um, died before the furnishings were removed out of the house. Mm. She had some in D.C., so the kids came in and took what they wanted. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. as I tell guests, it, you know, it's just mother's old used furniture. Right, sure, and sure. Things do not change. And so then there was a giant estate sale here that went on for three days. Oh, my. What year are we talking? We were talking the summer of 1889. Okay, wow. Um, 88, sorry, the summer of 1888. Okay. And uh, fortunately, the newspapers covered it pretty oh. well and talked about who bought what pieces and how sure. much they paid for them. And so uh, that has been helpful as well. But And then some pieces stayed with the house, and the house became a school in the fall of 1890. And there's been a school on this site ever, ever since. Ever since, yeah. sure. And the, some of the original items never left the house. They mm -hmm. just always stayed with the house. One of the things I love about Belmont, even though there's been buildings added and construction, you can still envision what it must have been, how majestic on the top of a hill, the beautiful mountain on the top of a hill, and her formal gardens and her zoo and the uh, all the trappings of wealth and the sculptures, etc. Right. Uh, so talk a little bit about... Um, Last year was a very turbulent year. We mm -hmm. are still dealing with some of that turbulence uh, with certainly COVID hitting and then George Floyd and BLM. And it was a perilous time for museums, for sure, uh, many of which had to close. Mm -hmm. And um, difficult. sometimes it's difficult to tell history uh, in the context of what we're dealing with in the current day. So talk about kind of what happened with your job and how uh, some of the issues you had to deal with and, and also some of the things that you've been really proactive about. I know, you know, in visiting your gift shop several years ago, you were talking about African-American history. You had panels set up and now you're branching into even more uh, interpretation. So talk a little bit about that and kind of how you've tried to be proactive. Yeah, I had been researching um, the enslaved population here for a number of years. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about powerful white women not leaving a written trail. Then let's talk about enslaved people certainly do not have very much of a, 
of a written trail um, that they have left. So um, through just a number of different types of documents worked on putting together, just started with a list of the names mm -hmm. of the people who How many here. slaves were here at the at do you have any idea when at its hey, in its heyday how many people were enslaved well, working here? Well, the 1860 here? census, mm -hmm. which is the most complete um, document that we have, and uh, listed 32 enslaved people mm -hmm. living here. Uh, unfortunately, it only lists them by gender mm -hmm. and by complexion and age. Interesting. And so age. no names Interesting. are given. So that's all we have. Um, they seems to be about 10 family groups mm -hmm. uh, living here, and uh, they range in age from, I think, two months old to in, in their 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that we have. We have some legal documents that give names. We have a few letters, just these casual offhanded letters. Of, um, you have a photo, you said. We have well, we actually have one, mm -hmm. and it was done much later. Mm -hmm. um, it was done. She was enslaved, uh, but she lived at Fairview. She worked here at Belmont as a freed person after uh, the Civil War, but her family was connected uh, with um, the Franklin family and the Ackland family, and. Um, continued living in the Fairview area up until even today, mm -hmm. uh, some of her descendants. Fairview's out toward Hendersonville. It's out mm -hmm. towards uh, Hendersonville, mm -hmm. the, the Fairview uh, plantation or really farm. horse farm. Horse farm, yeah. Out, out and it there. still exists, but of course it's been all subdivided. The last, all, the last plantation, I guess is right, what it's, it's called. Right, called now. Yeah. And so, uh, but we had been working on documenting that and really thought, and really have a pitiful poor amount of information. But just, we eventually got most of the name. And now we've been able to, and later with some new advance, with digitalization, mm -hmm. all of this digitalization that is taking place now of newspapers, books, and army records, um, uh, Freeman's Bureau records, mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff, you now can do in minutes and a few hours of what it would have taken days mm -hmm. to do in the past. Did you have any um, of the enslaved people become soldiers? Yes, we have uh, three of the enslaved people here that we know became soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, one uh, eventually moved to St. Louis. We've even located his grave mm -hmm. uh, in St. Louis. Uh, another one, we can trace him to the end of the war and uh, disappears mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the war. Um, the third one also joins, and that's all we know, Randolph we believe is impressed to, um, go, they all go over to Fort Nagley, uh, which is where there was um, uh, groups of in, in former enslaved and enslaved people living mm -hmm. right around in horrible conditions, 
right around Fort Negley, and they were they were building the fortifications for mm-hmm. the city of Nashville. The shanty town. The shanty town, mm-hmm. and and in the and the fortifications for the city were enormous, and the second most fortified city in America by December first of eighteen sixty four, most likely. Wow. And so these 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 laborers had built and. Uh, all of this, and we think Randolph did not survive. We think he died mm-hmm. uh, there at uh, Fort Nagley. Mm-hmm. Another one of the problems we have is we have very few last names. I see. Mm-hmm. And then when you start talking about the women, that becomes even more problematic, and of course with the changing of names. So they weren't names. called Ackland? Their last name wasn't Ackland? Or... A few are called Ackland mm-hmm. by a number of different spellings. Uh, interesting. Yeah, just all sorts of different spellings. Uh-huh. Um, we don't know whether that was the name given to them for some of these records or whether they actually chose that name mm-hmm. and continue to use that name. Um, we've gone through the city directories in Nashville and certainly a number of African-Americans with the name Ackland show up. We've had been very, very difficult to connect them back to specific people here. For example, William. We know William was approximately 19 years old in 1865. He's still living here at Belmont in 65. He testifies in a case for the Freeman's Bureau, but there are five William or four William Acklands living in Nashville by 1870. We don't know which one uh, he is. So where was the Freeman's Bureau located? Do you know? Was that in downtown Nashville somewhere? It would have been in downtown, somewhere? but mm-hmm. I don't know where exactly mm-hmm. uh, the offices were mm-hmm. uh, in downtown Nashville. Those records have not produced a lot of uh, information for us. We've mm-hmm. just not. We've looked at them. We've just not been able to mm-hmm. to glean a, a much information out of them yet. Mm-hmm. I think there are still a few more that are out there that will become available. Well, and one of the things that we talked about today that you shared with me is this new wing to Belmont Mansion Mm -hmm. that will be interpreting African-American history, which is very exciting, and you're really starting work on that virtually immediately. Mm -hmm. Hope to have it completed maybe by the end of the year and then some interpretation first quarter of next year. Right. So when the word gets out, perhaps there'll be other people that come forward and say, hey, I've got some information and maybe you can share it, which would be great too. We're hoping, I mean, we we posted a number of years ago uh, information on our website, uh, and it's being updated uh, regularly. And we were hoping this would bring, but so far it is not. Sure. Sure. And we have completely changed our interpretation. Well, not completely changed. We have added and redone our interpretation quite thematically last summer. Uh, The first thing I learned in graduate school in a a class on the writing of history at 7.30 on a Saturday morning. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's was, tenacity. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was um, that each generation has to write their own history. Mm-hmm. And that the, the point was not necessarily that um, history changes, but the questions we're asking of history change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good way to look at museums today, mm-hmm. is the questions that the public is asking is changing. And so we're trying to 
understand the questions that they're asking. There certainly is a lot more emphasis and interest in uh, African American history now. So that has been working to our tours um, a lot more. Um, Do you think you're, the average tourist is more knowledgeable? Are they history buffs or are they just here vacationing in Nashville and they have a few couple hours? I mean, what, what's the average tourist that finds their way to Belmont? There is no average tourist that okay. finds their way to Belmont. No, okay. There, I mean, it is, it is um, sort of, it's interesting and somewhat shocking uh, on a typical day of watching the people come through. You have uh, people that are knowledgeable in history, uh, well-educated, um, upper class, obviously socioeconomically upper class, and um, very knowledgeable. And then uh, the next group that come in may arrive on a Harley Davis motorcycle, be tattooed and wearing t-shirts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're looking for a different experience. Mm -hmm. uh, they, in some ways, they're looking for a different experience mm -hmm. uh, than the others, but it's all about being immersed into the, the spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what house museums do better mm -hmm. than most any other museum, is you can become immersed in the space. Imagine what it would have been like. Imagine what it would have been like, get a, under, get a better understanding of the way, the way people live, the way they function. We try to talk about uh, some of their beliefs and their view of the world and how that has affected uh, us today. Mm -hmm. And so that's all part of it. And then also, a lot of people are here, they, they like antiques. They want to see pretty rooms and a pretty house. And beautiful gardens. And beautiful gardens. Yeah, the town has done a phenomenal job with the grounds. Do you think, um, and we've become an it town, for sure. I mean, oh, when yes. you, for sure, as long as I've lived here and as long as you've worked here, we've really changed drastically. Really, Nashville has changed enormously. And, and I think certainly the television show Nashville brought people here. I'm wondering if people's fascination with Downton Abbey, different country, different period, but maybe that got people more interested in houses and, and antiques. I'm just wondering. I think I, we certainly were hearing more references to Downton Abbey mm -hmm. when it was on. Mm -hmm. So I think there was, uh, people became fascinated uh, with that. And that also was excellent in giving more insight to what was happening below the stairs. Exactly. And yeah. so you have these parallel lives mm -hmm. going on uh, that uh, intersect, but they're really running the, the and so that part of it mm -hmm. became more interesting. And I think people are just, just more interested in the, the more mundane day-to-day -day mm -hmm. in some respects. Of, mm -hmm. How did they get ice? Where did the ice come from? Mm -hmm. You know, these kind of... How did they adapt to new technology when it right. came? Jerry, what, what have you discovered in, in, in your journey here at Belmont? And, of course, bill, billiard room is something you've been interested in, but you were involved with the, the floor restoration, I'm assuming, and... Um, one of the things I love about Belmont is every time I come here, you have tapped 
artisans that are amazing, like the marbling, the faux marbling and the graining that have been done here, just unparalleled, you know? I mean, it's rivals houses in Louisiana and places I visited. So um, do you want to add to that at all, some of the things you, you've worked on? Well, I think one of the most striking things that we've done is just what you mentioned, is, is the floor in the Grand Salon. Mm -hmm. You knew the floor before it was changed. It doesn't it, creak anymore. <laughs> no, it does not. Uh, two levels of modern hardwood flooring, I called it developer oak, the type mm. of things we all saw in our mid-century houses that we grew up in, laid over the original floor. We had two photographs of the Grand Salon, which gave us hints of what the original flooring looked like. And I'm one of those people that I could not stand it, mm -hmm. knowing what was under Underneath. that floor. Yes. Yeah. So I cut a small hole in one end of a long gallery that's attached to the Grand Salon. I remember seeing that. <laughs> and we uncovered two of the black and white tiles, and then the hole got a little larger and a little larger and a little larger. And, and Mark was looking, and he said, how far are you going to go with that? <laughs> And I said, the entire room. <laughs> so we did stop with the exploration, and then we started to raise funds to mm -hmm. uncover the original floor. And luckily, we were able to do that. And one of the best days I've had here is when the contractors put a circular saw down on the new floor and started to cut it up mm. and peel it back mm -hmm. to reveal the original floor. But we found that there had been major repairs in the original floor over the years, that mm. the college was here. But there was enough of the original pattern left that we were able to document it. To restore it. it. Yes. Mm. And one of the most interesting things found was one white tile had the, a handprint in the middle of it. What? Oh, my. And my first reaction was that this is a signature of an African-American painter. <gasps> oh, did you, it, did you save it? Do, I, do you have it somewhere? Well, we it's still in place. We photographed it and we copied it on the floor that we overlaid the original Oh my floor. God. Oh, how wonderful. You have to point that out. Okay. I will. I'll show it to you before you go. How wonderful. And the interesting thing about the marbleizing, as it was uncovered, I said, the people that are doing this marbleizing have never seen a piece of marble. And I think that's very true. Interesting. It's what they imagine it would exactly. look like. Exactly. Exactly. And so what we have is a folk art yeah, interpretation. Very, very definitely, yeah. Done by a combination, I think, of African American painters. And we know from my research and what other people have done in the country that construction crews in the nineteenth century South were largely composed of African Americans. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt that much of what was done here in the 1850s and 60s was done by African-Americans. And it's wonderful to me that we've been able to expose that, to identify it as a feat of an African-American painter, and then be able to talk about it here in the 21st that's, century. And that's so important to talk yes, about it as is. well. Yes, it is. And to me, uh, you know, if you visit Belmont, and I hope you all do, listen to this, uh, the sensibility of what was beautiful and what we think of as beautiful is very, very different. <laughs> I mean, yes. we would consider it to be a bit garish, I would say, maybe is the best word. They were not afraid of color. No. And they were not afraid of pattern. Mm -hmm. And their belief was no surface left undecorated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
fear of the vacant <laughs> uh, was, was uh, I think, best describes the middle of the 19th century. And to be showy about your wealth. Yes, perfectly acceptable. And praised, frankly, mm-hmm. right? Like the, um, I love the windows as you walk in with the, the red windows with the gold in to make the... That is correct, right? Is it gold? Gold oxide, yes. Gold oxide, yeah, to make it right. Um, I'm going to ask both of you uh, if I I assume that you have enjoyed your careers and would recommend getting involved in curatorial work, museum work. Is that true? Maybe not. They're rolling their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't always been easy because part of what you do is you have to raise money. You have to raise money. Yes. And so, yes, I've, I've, I've certainly enjoyed my career and certainly considered myself fortunate to be able to make a living mm-hmm. uh, doing something that I uh, love doing. Mm-hmm. If someone were, were to follow in your path, what, what, what advice would you offer them? Um, start an IRA immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell students, live below your means. Yes. <laughs> yes, go ahead and set up that RA very early. Once you get those good loans paid off, then start on the IRA. Uh. <laughs> I always tell people to travel as much as you can. Travel oh, yeah. because it opens yeah. mm-hmm. it opens your eyes. And I think people are fearful who don't travel, don't get an opportunity to travel and experience mm-hmm. other cultures. Um, but yeah, that that's, that's part of it. And if you... If you don't have an inquisitive mind or be inquisitive about so much stuff, many things, and want to research and learn more about whatever it is, and if you don't have a passion, mm-hmm. then... But to be a lifelong learner is what you're be, saying. To be a lifelong mm-hmm. learner, exactly. mm-hmm. then this is not the field for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got to like people. You can't just like things. Because at the end yes. of the at the end of the day, yeah. you have to deal with the public, mm-hmm. right? And you have to answer dumb questions and people who are talking when they should be listening and any any number of things. I'm sure you have a lot of stories about guests that maybe weren't the best on their best behavior too. Mm-hmm. So that must be difficult. Jerry, how about you? I never remember a time when I wasn't interested in historic buildings mm-hmm. from a small child. I had a father who was an engineer. And he had a love of history, so I'm sure that's where most of mine comes Came from. Came from, sure. So yes. you were probably drugged to museums as a child, or I was. Anyway. I was never drugged to a museum. I was the one who always said, let's go let's there. Let's go, let's go. And but you learned an appreciation for history I at did, an very early much, age. Very yeah. much so. Everything that we do here, you're constantly learning. Mm-hmm. It's not about just peeling back a layer of plaster and finding what's behind it. It's researching what you find. Mm-hmm what other people have found, what other people have written about, what their opinions are of certain details that we may find, whether we agree with them or not. It's interesting to know what other people have determined. And I have been introduced several times um, at public speaking events as an expert, and the one thing I want people to know is you are never an expert because you constantly learn. Mm -hmm. No Mm -hmm. one ever knows it all. Mm-hmm. particularly in this field. In this field. And then I'm, I'm gonna, I'll close with this one question. Why is it important to preserve and interpret American history?
historic sites are touchstones to our history. Um, you can read all you want to in a book, in papers, and that certainly is extremely important. And you have a much better understanding of the world in which you're living in if you have done that. But there is something visceral mm -hmm. about being able to stand in at, around a place that contains history. And we're a young country. And we're such a young country. Let's no, not country. destroy what little we have, really. Right. How about you, Jerry? You want to add anything? I can remember that the first time I went to Williamsburg as a child, I was absolutely enthralled because it was a village of another time. Mm -hmm. And they have a motto that the future may learn from the past. And I think that is one of the most important things that we can teach people who are interested in this field, that they need to grow from it and understand the past to be able to go forward. Mm-hmm have a point of reference. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. You made me lunch, you gave me a history mm -hmm. tour, and you've been so generous with your time. Thank you for listening to Applaudable Perspectives. If people want to go to your website, what is it? And if they want to make a donation, where should they send money? Uh, the website is belmontmansion.com. Belmont, B-E-L-M-O-N-T, one L. Uh-huh, mansion. I'm Dot com. Yes, I don't know what our website address is. <laughs> That's okay. And uh, the, the address is 1900 Belmont Boulevard. You can make a donation on our website. Uh, and you can do a Google search and get to it. Make sure you go to Belmont Mansion in Nashville, Tennessee, not Belmont Mansion in Philadelphia. <laughs> 37212. 37212. Yes. Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you so much. This has been a bonanza of a day for me.